texts and know it. Lord, we are so grateful for your love for us. We know that you are taking us home. You did not save us uh, just to drown us and leave us in this old world. We know that you've come to take us home. And Lord, there are some, some even watching, um, that maybe feel closer than ever. Lord, there's dear brothers and sisters who have gone through surgeries this week and treatment and, and they're ailing, Lord. Others that um, are in hospice care, Lord, and uh, we love them and, and uh, we, we want them in many ways to be with you, Lord. But in your timing, Lord, and so we pray that you would strengthen them. We thank you for our missionaries around the world. We're so grateful to partner with them. So many of them, if they're ahead of us time-wise, have already preached the gospel to people that have a different tongue, a, a different language, and they heard the gospel in that language today. And we thank you that we can stand with those missionaries, support them, financially stand with them, but hold that rope as they go to a place, down into a place where we can't go. And so we're so grateful, Lord, we remember them. Thank you for calling them and sending them. Lord, I plead with you this morning that you would raise up young people, older people from this congregation that would, call, that would have a desire to go preach the gospel around the world, Lord. Father, stir in their hearts. This is a calling of you. Lord, we thank you for all of us that are here, though. Lord, you've placed us particularly here in this body of Christ to serve you, know you, grow together, be worshipers, Lord. Thank you for our children's ministry down the hall. Bless them, give them strength, Lord, as the next generation hears the gospel. Lord, now we turn our attention to the word, your perfect word. Lord, we need not add to it. It is infallible, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me as I explain this text. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been reading through the book of Luke in my personal reading, just enjoying it. I came across a passage in Luke chapter 10 that I want to use to introduce this passage. It's a fascinating text. Jesus has sent his disciples out. He's sent them out by twos. And he's given them extraordinary powers to do things, to recognize the authority of the gospel message that they were carrying and they returned, and there is this welcome by the Lord Jesus that is just spectacular. Luke chapter 10, verse 17 reads this way. Follow along if you can. The 70 returned, and notice how they returned, and you know what I'm after here. Joy, right? The 70 returned with joy. I promise you, anytime you share God's word with somebody, when you share the gospel with somebody, when you take time to listen to the Spirit of God leading you to share truth, you will have joy. They may reject you. They may punch you in the face. A lot of things may happen in today's culture. But I'll tell you what, you will have joy if you share the gospel with people. And these 70 have returned, and they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And look at Jesus' response, full of joy. He says to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Wow. See, Satan doesn't have anything over us. He really doesn't. And the, and the gospel just sends death arrows through him. It is the answer to everything he teaches and stands against. That gospel penetrates him in such a way. And Jesus knows this. Verse 19, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, now this is interesting, do not rejoice in this, right? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people going, boy, I got this. I want this power. I want to speak in this tongue. and I want to do this. And all. They all want power, right? Jesus reminding very early on what to rejoice in, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in that. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Isn't that an amazing statement? Because that's what God rejoices over. When one soul is returned, all of heaven rejoices, as we saw last week, and we'll see again this week. And then verse 20, listen to our Lord. At that very time, he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent Pharisees, scribes, <laughs> chapter 15, and have revealed them to infants, sinners, tax collectors, bleeding women, right? Uh, uh, those who rejected the Zacchaeuses, the, the Matthews, the Mary Magdalene's, you and I, right? We are the infants. And then he says, yes, Father. Now catch this. 
for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Oh, our Lord finds great joy in the gathering of souls. And if he finds joy in it, we should find joy as well. And praise God with that. As you return to Luke chapter 15, particularly verses 8 through 10, will be our text that we'll look at now. And, and here we see exactly who those wise and intelligent are. They are the scribes and Pharisees. They are the ones that want nothing to do with the people of the dirt. They are beneath us. They are unclean. They're the outcasts. We want nothing to do with them. They are standing with Jesus, and they are standing opposing Jesus, these Pharisees and scribes. The theme has been the lost, the seeker, the finding of them, and the rejoicing of that. We saw that last week. And as we look at this passage today, that is the truth as well. You'll see the lost. You'll see the one who seeks after it. You'll see the one who finds it. And you'll see the joy that comes when that particular thing is found. Second story has several uh, similar aspects to it, right? The first story was a shepherd who had a lost sheep. The second story is a woman who has a lost coin. Shepherds were poor. They were despicable people, according to the Pharisees. They lived in undesirable places. They were not to be trusted. And then all of a sudden, Jesus takes them to this woman. She's represented by a female who most likely lived in a small village. She was probably poor and lived in a poor setting. Both of these are low-class citizens, according to the Pharisees and scribes. Both have lost something very valuable. Both would be disdained by the Pharisees and scribes. And if the Pharisees and scribes disdain being connected with a shepherd, can you imagine what is happening when Jesus is connecting them with a woman? Heaven forbid in that ancient society. In fact, we see, you'll notice, the Lord will draw them into this story. And it will be insulting to them in one level. They'll have to confess it to be true, but they will not want to be drawn into this. Women were just possessions in the ancient world. It's not hard to go back and study that. And that possession, if it did not give you what you want, when you want it, and how you wanted it, you just got rid of her. We see that a problem. Look with me at Matthew chapter 19. Jesus addresses this. In fact, it's a trap. The religious leaders have come to Jesus trying to trap him, trying to test him, trying to find fault in him was their goal. And they take on marriage, which was a huge mistake, because the author of marriage is standing in front of them. This is a battle they can't win, and he will expose their wicked hearts. Chapter 19, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed for Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them. Isn't he a shepherd, isn't he? See, shepherds have sheep, right? And sheep follow a shepherd. And if you're a shepherd and nobody follows you, that's a problem, isn't it? Jesus is the ultimate example of it. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus. Here we go. They're going to test him. Expose air is the idea of the word. To find flaws, to find sinfulness is the idea here. Asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? He answered said to him, have you not read your Bible? <laughs> have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, he's taking them back to the creative order. This is astounding, isn't it? He's taking them right back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Have you not read this from the beginning? He made them male and female. Hey, there's some pronouns. <laughs> Bible has no problem explaining this, does it? Christians shouldn't either. This goes back to the garden, doesn't it? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Absolutely. <laughs> I remember that day. Dad, I'm marrying her, and I can't wait to leave. <laughs> it was the greatest day, right? No more saying goodbye, right? And hanging up the, the, the phone with a cord on it back then, right? For you younger people, no more texts before you fall asleep. When you're married, you don't say goodnight anymore over a phone. You say goodnight together in bed. This was what God intended, right? 
Let no one separate them. The two shall become one. When God looks at one, he sees the other. When he cuts, she bleeds. There's, there's a oneness now that God designed. This is marriage. This is what God designed. This is not what the Pharisees had developed. Verse 6, so there are no longer two but one flesh. Very clear statement here. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What a warning shot across the bow of humanity. This is my, this is my design. This is my marriage that I came up with, not you, man. <laughs> you don't have the right to mess with it. It's mine. It's a warning by the creator of marriage. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, that's exactly what was happening. Over time, just like today, do you think, you think we're into somewhere new with divorce and marriage and all kinds of things going on? No, no, that, they've always rejected the things of God. Man in his sinful heart has always rejected those things. And so here they reject it, and God, and God Jesus points it out. He says, he said, because of the hardness of the heart, that's why your problem is. That's where divorce comes from. It comes from a hardness of heart. Now, certainly, God lays down clear rules of infidelity and abandonment. Those things have to be studied out very clearly and make sure those are true. But, but God has protected men and women in a marriage that is uh, uh, not kept as God intended it to. But he says, look, the divorce comes because of hardness of heart. You've hardened your heart. And Moses permitted your divorce your wives. Now notice the wives. Now it doesn't say wives, husbands, wives, because that was the problem. That's the way they treated women. From the beginning, it has been, from, from the beginning, it has not been done this way. And then again, he gives the exception of immorality here. And so as we drop into the story, you have a religious leaders who created a, a, a form of marriage that was was based on seeing women as less than men in, in many ways. They actually saw them as unclean and disregard them. Some of the early court recordings that have found that Pharisees allowed men to divorce their wives because they burnt the toast. This is how bad it had got. Men dominated women, and they deemed them unimportant and unworthy of respect. Remember, that's how they treated the shepherds, right? So Jesus, here in his beautiful way, he draws these Pharisees and scribes into the scene. He, 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 there he begins to describe a scene that they can't help but be brought in. What, what, or what woman, if she has these ten coins, is losing one? He's bringing them into it. These Jewish religious elites would treat women as though they were unclean and would want nothing to do with them. The rabbis would say, we know that she has a monthly curse and we don't know when that is and so we'll just not touch her. That's how they were treated. And yet Jesus is going to use her as an example of himself. Women often worked closely with servants Men would go off to work. The servants would come in and help women. And it was deemed if that wife worked with a servant and came too close in contact, in fact, touched some of the food that she touched without it being washed, she too would now be unclean and her husband say, I can't touch you till you're purified. This is how they were treated in the ancient world. So Jesus chooses to use a shepherd and a woman to be the prime examples of how to seek something that's lost. Those he uses examples, the Bible says God rejoices in. He rejoices in how one is found who was lost. And so he sets a great distance between the desires of God and the desires of the religious elite. He's showing how distant they are of what God has. But we know this was Jesus' great joy, wasn't it? To rescue. Our cross-reference verse that we've been using throughout this study is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross. He hung on the cross till he could say those three beautiful words, it is finished. That brought him tremendous joy to fulfill his father's 
plan. And the Bible says despising the shame, meaning he thought nothing of all the shame, all the finger wagging, all the threats, all the, all the nasty reviling that came at him. He thought nothing of that to experience the joy of rescuing the lost. But there's more to that even. As I study this passage, I see the result of Christ's finished work as heavenly joy. There's a result of heavenly joy that Christ was anticipating in heaven. Not only did he know he would hang there for the joy of rescuing the lost, but he knew heaven was in joyful uh, uh, party mode in a sense. As now all the redeemed from the past to the future would be gathered to heaven, but gathered to God through his finished work. And he reveled in the joy that would take place in heaven. That does my soul good. A couple of Sunday nights ago, we watched testimonies. We have baptisms on Sunday nights here, and there was eight of them. And, I mean, I just felt so overwhelmed with joy. And I thought, I'm fallen. I'm I'm fallible, right? I'm not infallible like God in heaven and all that's perfect there. And I was full of joy. And so many here were that night. We were full of joys. We listened to testimony after testimony of the redeemed. And I thought, oh my goodness, think about heaven in its perfect state where joy is, is, is everlasting and perfect in all its ways. Oh, that was just a glorious night. See, that's what Jesus died for. He died for the joy of his father, that his father would have extreme joy of rescuing the lost through his finished work. Well, let me get into this a little bit. I, uh, there's been several thoughts that I've wanted to have and not been able to finish each week, and that might happen again, but we'll keep working at this. Uh, first, I want to talk about the character of God illustrated in a shepherd and a woman. This is fascinating. Um, Jesus picks these two characters here, this shepherd and this woman, to illustrate someone who has lost someone but is so diligently seeking to find that person, and then the result is joy. And, and again, he says, such is God, right? Such is all of heaven, such as angels and my Father in heaven. And he, he brings in the realm of heaven to help us understand that. And so I got thinking about some verses that maybe would help us. Go to Psalms 23. This is a psalm you know. And I, and I thought we could just look at this for real quickly, and then I want to just share a few others with you. When we think about the character of God illustrated in a shepherd and in a woman, God's character is seen in, in different ways. You know, we all know this psalm. Most of us memorized it as young children if we were raised in the church. But it is a beautiful psalm, right? It is a psalm of David the, who was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He knew what it was to shepherd. He spent his life, his young years, out taking care of his father's sheep. They didn't belong to him. They belonged to his father. So great illustrations all the way through this. David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, The Lord is my shepherd. You know, that's not a statement everybody can say. Most of the world can't say that. They might say this, the Lord is going to be my judge someday because I'm going to reject him and I'm going to try to come to God through my own good works. <laughs> That's very different. But those who are believers, God is our shepherd. He has his eyes on the flock all the time. And when you and I stray, he goes after us and he'll even discipline us and bring us back into the fold. But when we were not part of his flock, when we were alien to him, he went out and sought to us. And now he has become our shepherd. Look at his sufficiency. I shall not want. Boy, that's a great shepherd, isn't it? You go, well, I, yeah, I'd like a little higher salary. That's not what this is talking about. <laughs> I have no other spiritual needs of what it takes for me to spend eternity with the chief shepherd. He has met every need that I have so that I can spend eternity grazing in his presence. That's the idea there. I don't offer anything. I come empty-handed. And by the grace of God, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, I now graze in his pastures, and I seek nothing else. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside the quiet waters. That's Jesus. I get everything I need from Christ and his word. He gives me all that, and I, I graze in his deep grass, in his cool waters. He guides me besides a path of righteousness. And I need that guiding sometimes, right? Because there's some other paths that come along. And he says, no, 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 Scott. This is the way to righteousness. This is the way to doing things according to my standards. So you'll have full joy. You'll experience joy on this earth. 
And he does this for his name's sake, for his glory and for his joy. He loves it when his sheep stay in his pasture. And so he, he guides us and fences us in and keeps us going along that line. Even though I walk through the valley of a shadow of death, I love that term. It's just a shadow, right? You're going to pass, would you rather drive through a truck on I-95 or just through its shadow? I think we're going to shadow, most of us, right? It's a whole different world for us who are believers, right? The shadow of death, yes, it has some wolves and some trappings of the world in there, but it's just a shadow. And because I know that I have the chief shepherd watching over my soul, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In fact, when you discipline me, Lord, I know it because you love me. Anybody had the hand of God on them lately? <laughs> little swift kick. <laughs> Get back in line. He does it with love, and we know it, don't we? But look at verse 5. I thought this was fascinating. The Bible says that men and women are made in his image. I'll tell you what. You want Gina to prepare a table for you a lot faster than you want me to prepare a table for you. I got paper plates and maybe a napkin if you're lucky. Look what our Lord does. You prepare a table before the presence of my enemy. That's a feminine aspect of God, right? He made us in his image, and, and we see that in the character of God. We see that in many ways. As, you're, as you make your way back to uh, Luke, just think of some other verses. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 13, verse 34, says this, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered your children together just like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. That's that aspect of our Lord, that mothering aspect of the Lord. Husbands are taught in Ephesians chapter 5 to be a picture of Christ to their wives. There in verse 29, it says that he is to nourish and cherish it just as Christ does the church. It's a reflection of how he deals with his own self and how he deals with his wife. Nourish her and cherish her. These are, these are terms that my wife fulfilled so much better than I did with the children. When they are hurt, they run right by dad and head for mom, don't they? It's like, you know, I can find the Band-Aid too. No, no. She nourishes. She cherishes. God designed her that way. And God designed her in, her, in his image. And so there's aspects of these. When we think about Paul's care for the churches, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, but we prove to be gentle among you. Most women are a little more gentle than men. As nursing mothers tenderly care for their own children, well, we're out totally there. I don't care what they're saying on the news. This is, this is Paul's description of how God is leading him to care for the church. This is the character of God. Having so fond of an affection for you, we were, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you've become dear to us. Wow, what a, what a beautiful verse of responding the way God responds to us. The religious leaders of Paul's day would have never understood that kind of affection for God's people. All the tax collectors and sinners are here. They're over there. Don't get near us. You're unclean. You're, you're of the dirt. But here's Jesus and his disciples and apostles that come. See, pastors are challenged to shepherd the flock of God. The word shepherd is a great word, poimero. Um, it's a word that we translate often pastor, but its real translation is shepherd. And so your pastors are shepherds of you. That's what God's called us to do. We are called to shepherd you and care for you as those, one, these under shepherds who must give an account. But the Greek word means to take care of a flock, uh, one that tends their needs, one that watches over someone that doesn't belong to them. They watch over the nutrition they protect, they guide, they care for, they look after is the idea. These are incredible terms, and they are terms that we see in the Lord Jesus. Look with me at Luke, uh, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. One of my favorite passages in the scriptures of the description of our Lord Jesus Christ comes from John 10. John 10, 
Verse 1 tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber, Pharisees and scribes, (laughs) in chapter 15 of Luke. He's always identifying who's not of him. This is what he does. And he's going to do that to the end, right? There's going to be a day where he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. This is what our Lord does. He identifies those who are his and those who are not. He has no problem with that. He knows the elect. He knows who's are his. We don't, praise the Lord. That's why we just keep preaching the gospel. But he does. And so he identifies these men, these religious leaders, as he's doubtlessly, and they're in the hearing of him. They're thieves and they're robbers. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep, comes in properly, comes in the right way. To him the doorkeeper opens, right? This is a shepherd, right? The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name. And leads them out. What a spectacular statement of knowledge of the lambs. But he puts forth, uh, when he puts forth all of his, he goes ahead of them. He doesn't drive them and push them into areas they're not supposed to go. He leads them where they need to go. And the sheep follow them because they know his voice. It's the mark of a shepherd. I remember many times helping neighbors out that had bands of sheep. And once a year they'd have to be vaccinated and sheared and all those type of things. And we're a bunch of cowboys and you know we show up with our shaps and our spurs and boots on you know and and these sheep look at us and go oh yeah we're not going with you and we got them spread all over the pasture they're running everywhere through fences and then all of a sudden the owner of the sheep comes out and whistles and starts to talk and they just all line up and come right in and we're standing out in the field like a bunch of boneheads like why don't we do that to start with because they didn't know our voice and they weren't going to follow us But they know the voice. A stranger, verse 5, they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he was saying to them. So Jesus said it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. If you didn't get me as a shepherd, now let's make me out to be the door. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, but the sheep did not hear them. Remember, there's tons of false messiahs. It is said, Josephus says that there was at least a hundred false messiahs that came before Jesus. Maccabees would be one of them. Ooh, sorry. That's offensive to somebody. But that's what happened. They rode in in white chargers and claimed that they were going to dominate the enemies and, and set the kingdom of God up and every one of them died. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was the door, and the door was open to him. The sheep didn't hear all the rest. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. This is the way to salvation, not the others. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. They'll grow in the grace and knowledge of me. Ten, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came They may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. Sees the wolf come and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's exactly what happens. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. What a statement. This is our Lord. This is the chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. He flees. Because he's not a hired hand. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Isn't that beautiful? So I think it's why you're here today. You know Jesus. Uh, if you came for any other reason, you just probably wasted a good hour and a half, maybe an extra five minutes on top of that way I'm going here. Um, because, but I think you're mostly are here because you love Jesus, right? You're captured by him. You heard his voice, didn't you? You heard him call you out of the slavery of sin, and you started following him. That's why you're here. You heard him. He's a good shepherd. He's not a thief. And look at verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. There's this Trinitarian relationship with the shepherd. Six, I have other sheep. I love this verse. Which are not of this fold. Very Jewish setting here. I must bring them in also. That's me, Mr. Gentile sheep, (laughs) Mr. Portikey, wandering around in the Azores, you know, my family. Praise God. Praise God he had other sheep, right? They, listen, they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. 
Isn't that beautiful? For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from the Father, this is the Father's goal, is what Jesus is saying. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to take it up. I'm doing it on my own initiative. I'm not forced. I want the Father's will, not my own will. I'll lay it down. I'll take it up because I love my sheep. I care greatly for them. See, pastors follow this model, right? We're, we're not perfect. You know that. But we follow the model of the great shepherd. Paul told the elders at Ephesus um, when he was passing through on his way to Jerusalem, he said, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then he says, this Poimero, to shepherd Poimero, the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. What a great reminder. This is what we do. First, we watch our own hearts and our own lives, and then we watch over the flock that the Holy Spirit made us shepherds, not ourselves. We didn't claim to all of a sudden be a shepherd. The Holy Spirit calls you and qualifies you and equips you and gives you a following, right? He makes you this overseer. All these terms are of elders here to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased so it belongs to him because his blood bought them, not mine. And so I'm a steward of you. All the rest of our pastors are stewards of you. We're going to give an account someday for what we've done with you. And we praise God for that opportunity, but it is a calling. Peter says this. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you in 1 Peter chapter 5, 2 and 3. Among you. So there's a great term. So God expects shepherds to be among the flock, to be with them, to hear them, listen to them, partake with them, weep with them, rejoice with them, be among them. Shepherds that stand on a hill somewhere and never come down among the sheep are not shepherds. He actually used that term twice within this passage, be among them. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you have to do it, because you get to do it. Do it voluntarily, the text says. According to the will of God, not from sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flocks. That's what we need to be. That's what God calls us to be. And this is the character of God. And so when we look at God as, as a pastor, I look at God, I look at Christ, and I see him as a shepherd, and I see him tenderly caring for others. So we find a great amount of God's character. We look at both these two illustrations, a shepherd and a woman. Second, seeing the value and intensely pursuing that which is lost. Let me get into the text now, finally. Um, I have so much fun studying, I, I do apologize. Uh, I really have a great time, and I get just uh, overwhelmed with the beauty of Christ. And so I, I get on these, I think they're divine rabbit trails, but uh, I hope you would enjoy them. But as we go back, now look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Now we have the crowds, right? Jesus is there. Most likely there's a great separation between the Pharisees and the scribes. You have the sinners and the tax collectors, the Mary Magdalene's, the Matthews, and so forth set aside. They won't go near them, and he's still talking to them, and now he draws them into the next scene. Verse 8, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, search and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Well, Jesus clearly is showing what makes God joyful. He's determined to rescue sinners. That's what makes God joyful. And all of this is driven by his personal pursuit of joy, God's personal pursuit of joy. And so the Godhead finds his great joy in recovering whatever's lost. When he finds it, he has immense joy, and he says that that joy is very valuable. And so now here we have Jesus. He's got the scribes' attention. He's drawn them into this woman's world. They're probably frustrated with it, but nevertheless, Jesus commands respect when he teaches. And it is amazing when you study this, you begin to realize that he has, the cap, he has this audience captive. He spoke with power and authority. And though they didn't like what he was saying, they're brought into this scene. And I would love to see this. Notice in verse 8 that this woman loses a coin. The Bible says it's a silver coin, one of ten. In Jesus' time, most likely this was a silver uh, Greek um, drachma or a silver Roman denarius, one or the other, if it is those kind of coins. The drachma was worth roughly about a day's, a full day's wages, so it was of very much value if that was the case. And, 
And you would certainly search diligently for a day's wages, wouldn't you? Some of the commentaries I read said these might be more than that. They could be extremely valuable. And there's some reasons why some of these men uh, wrote this way. They said because there was the way the woman searched, there's an intensity. Uh, this isn't a few shekels, right? This is, this is some, something very valuable. And then this party that is thrown at the end, this, this seems that this is greater maybe than even possibly a day's wages. We know that husbands would leave uh, their wives money, uh, coins, uh, there wasn't uh, your insurance agent that was around all the time. Um, you, you left your wife with some money because you're out in the field and who knows what can happen there, right? Robbers or something go wrong. And so it's kind of like a little bit of insurance. We've also known that fathers would leave their daughters uh, rare coins, expensive coins that were kind of a dowry to them to give them on their wedding day a little financial security and you can imagine that maybe if both those cases were true, these were very precious and valuable to this woman. I think the Pharisees probably learned the story, and they said, well, they lost one to ten. That's ten percent. That's a tithe. I wonder how they're going to tithe. That's probably where their minds went because, of course, they were using that money that came in for their own profit at times. The story does not tell us how she lost the coin, but the coin is simply missing, thus it's deemed lost in the text here. Because the coin was valuable, she would have sought to take care of it, right? And upon missing, there's this great search that ensues, right? And so the women in the ancient world tried to take care of these coins, right? They, they were often had a small hole in them, some of them, and they would put string through them. They would put them around their necks to keep them safely and tuck them underneath their garments, or they would lace them through their hair. They did all kinds of ways. Many poor women didn't have a purse that the rich had in that time, and so they would take a, a rag and an old garment, and they would put those coins and anything else that was valuable, and they would put that in and tie it up with a string, and they would keep that. That's the way they secured their valuables. Well, somehow this coin here is lost from her procession, and the search goes on. I couldn't help but think about this. In fact, Gina leaned over to me when uh, Aaron was reading the passage. She says, he goes, that's me. And I go, it's so true. Gina goes, hey, I've lost this. I go, well, I hope you find it. She's tearing the house up, vacuuming, going all over the place. I'm like... I don't know. I, it's just, it, we're just different, aren't we? I don't know who's that way in your home, but Gina's a little more diligent at finding those lost set of keys or whatever we're looking for. And I could see this, right? You can see this woman. She's in this ancient small house. Its, ma- its walls are made of brick and clay and some kind of wooden structure to hold them together. There's doubtlessly no windows in it because that was for the luxury. There have been maybe a, split, a slit up in the wall to let the smoke of the stove go out. And so no matter if it was day or night, it was dark in this house, and that means she needs a lamp lit. And she's looking for a small item. It isn't hard. You look at this passage. that She's on her hands and knees. One hand, she has a broom, possibly. It says she's sweeping, right? In the ancient days, these floors were dirt. I don't know how you've been to third world. and it, You know, it's, it's a little comical, or at least you kind of, catches your attention when you're from our lifestyle here and you go over and we've seen this on every continent we've been on you know some woman has a stick that they somehow tied straw together in bands and it becomes this homemade broom and and you watch them and they're sweeping dirt i've seen that all the time they sweep dirt they clean the dirt they take the dust off it. And I could just imagine this. I've seen this scene so many times. And this dirt is hard, packed clay now. And in that dry climate, and especially the dry time of years, that floor would crack. And little things could easily fall between those cracks. And she swept with one hand with a broom and the other hand with a lamp, searching for what was valuable. Notice in the end of verse 8, it says she does this until she finds it. Until she finds it. This is an intense search, isn't it? She's after this thing. She needs to find this coin. This is valuable. And certainly this reflects God's pursuit of us, isn't it? God, search us out. I I know we have terms for churches, and I don't know if they're fair terms or not, but some people call a church a secret church. I hope we're all seeking the Lord. But reality is, He seeks us. That's the reality. 
We're dead in our sins. We're not seeking anybody. We're lifeless over there. It's him who's coming after us. And I love that idea. Peter says it this way. You were continually strained like sheep, Second, uh, 1 Peter 2, 25. But now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. We are like sheep that just wander. We're like a lost coin, an inanimate dead object. And it's our Lord that seeks us. John chapter 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now listen to this. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I will what? Lose nothing. <laughs> He's not going to lose anyone. And that's our hope, right? We have loved ones that don't know Jesus. He's not going to lose one of them that he's called. One of them that he's written his name on his hands. One of them that he's known from the foundations of the earth. He will not lose them. This is our Godhead. He finds great joy of raising up those in the last day that he has recovered and restored. This is what he does. Look at verse 9 with me. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. Let's just stop right there. I love that little first phrase, when she found it. When she finds it, not if she finds it, but when she finds it. Remember, Jesus said, all authority is given to me, and I will lose nothing. This is, this is what happened. The, chief, the shepherd goes out and finds the lost sheep, um, and he rejoices greatly, unashamed. And so here, this woman finds this coin, and she has unashamed joy when this coin is found. And this joy is not shared just privately. Notice the text. Look what she does. She calls her friends and neighbors. That's what's really fascinating about those two terms there, those two nouns there, these friends and neighbors, they're in the feminine tense. I thought about that. Every time you go look up the word church, which would be ecclesia in the scriptures, it's always in the feminine tense. The church represents the bride. And so here in this story, who does she go after? She goes after her girlfriends, right? Her friends. And, it, and it's not that she wouldn't have shared the joy with her husband. I'm sure she did. But the immediate circumstance, right, what's happening there, she gathers other ladies who would have understood her joy and would have rejoiced with her on finding what was lost but it was now found. And you can hear the joy in her statement. Look at verse 9. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And doubtlessly, this small and probably tight-knit community of women who suffered along in this difficult life of, of poor, uh, destitute life that it was in this, in this ancient world, they understood each other, right? They came together. And their joy, your joy was their joy, and, and their joy was your joy, right? They rejoiced and wept with one another over things like this. And, and I see this today. It was one of the things about ladies. And I love that you, we have Bible studies. And we want more Bible studies. And we want more prayer meetings where women gather together. Those are good things. Because they suffer with one another. And they rejoice with one another. Men, we need to learn how to do that better. This is what God's people do. They find great joy meeting together and sharing the realities of life, joys, and sorrows. And certainly this impromptu party that breaks out here is an appropriate response. Something was lost and it was found. Who would you call? Who would be your first phone call when something that was lost is now found? And let me go a little personal. Who would you call when God rescues a soul that you've been praying for? I hope your first call is to the Lord. I don't doubt that. But I, I, I would imagine there's somebody in your life you would say, hey, you know this daughter or this son or this uncle, this aunt, this mother, this father, whatever it may be that we've been praying for, they are now confessing Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I know a lot of you, you would say, oh, praise the Lord. Let's stop and thank the Lord even now. See, we long for those. And if one of your loved ones was saved and gathered, who would you rejoice with? Uh, and let me just say this. Are you anticipating God saving your loved ones? I, I know that's hard because we, we're not God. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know how God does all those things. They're a bit of a mystery to us, right? But we know he knows all. He's God. He's sovereign in all things. He's omniscient, right? So it's not like he's 
lost on who's going to be saved or not. He understands those things. I don't know where your theology is on all that, but that's the Bible's theology. But for you and I, we, we just know that we need, them, we need God to save this one, right? And we know that God loves to save. And so we ask, God, would you save our loved ones? Are you going to be a part of the solution of that? Are you going to be this part of the solution when God draws that loved one? Are you ready to express great joy because you've been praying? You've been sharing it with others. You've been asking others to pray. I, so many of you have asked me to pray for your children or family members, and I love doing that. And I've asked you to pray for our family members, and we have that in common, don't we? Because we want God to save, and we want to share that joy with each other. Well, third, when joy and pride are in great contrast. When joy and pride are in great contrast. Look at verse 10. Jesus says in the same way, tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the same way I tell you, this is emphatic. It's an emphatic in the Greek here. I mean, it's a strong statement. And I think he points at his detractors. <laughs> this is my opinion here. And he's aiming truth at their hearts. And once again, the Pharisees' pride would have been in great contrast with the joy of the Godhead, Right? We don't want anything to do with these people. We don't even understand what this is talking about. We, we wouldn't go, we wouldn't cross the street for somebody like a Samaritan who's been beat. Let alone rejoice over them. And so Jesus is showing, I want you to know this. The religious elite would, had to agree that lost coin or lost sheep was something to worth rejoice over at some measure. And yet these Pharisees and scribes failed to make the clear connection between their prideful disdain for the lost and what God em emphatically is passionate about. They would not have seen that. So here they are, missing out on the joy of God. Jesus says there's joy in the presence of the angels. It's interesting, I thought, you know, it's interesting that Sadducees are not here. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get along very well in the scribes. They were of two different sects. And so they didn't get along, and so they're not here. But the Sadducees would not appreciate this comment. They didn't believe in angels, but the Pharisees and scribes did. And the Lord Jesus knows that, right? So Jesus, what he does, I think what he does with his two groups, these Pharisees and uh, scribes, is he walks them into the throne room of God. And, and, and there, they could hear the joy of angelic voices proclaiming the glories of God because another soul has been rescued. That's what he's doing to them. And he's saying the angels are rejoicing. And you're, you're opposing what the angels are doing. And we know the angels love to announce this stuff. We see them at the announcement of Jesus' birth. I bring good news of great joy, which is for all people. The Savior is now born, Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 says this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's talking about these children that are coming to him. For I say to you that, that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And what this means is the angels react to whatever pleases God and displeases the Father. They can see it on his face. Well, that's quite a statement. The angels rejoice when they see God rejoice. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The angels experience the joy of rescuing even when they come to rescue his elect, rescue the redeemed. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a fascinating passage as we look at angels. 1 Peter chapter 1 is centered on the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a wonderful passage that talks about us being caused to be born again in verse 3. Uh, an inheritance from God that can't fade away. It's reserved in heaven. Verse 5, protected by God. Great rejoicing. Even though you have some trials on this earth, you have this salvation sealed for us, right? This is what is the outcome of our faith. It's our salvation of our souls, verse 9. And then, verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, 
seeking to know what person or time of the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ that would be his death on the cross and the glories to follow, the resurrection and the leading everybody back into eternity. So what he's saying here is the prophets wrote the Old Testament, moved along by the Spirit of God. They had to actually go back and read what they wrote to understand the timing of Christ. That's inspiration, first of all. What a statement for inspiration of the Scriptures. But look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. They were writing this for us. The Spirit of God was writing it through them. In these things which now have been announced to you through through those who preach the gospel, that's what it's all about, to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, now notice this little phrase, things in which the angels long to look. What a statement. See, Jesus is talking about the angels rejoicing because this is an important thing. There's a third of the angels swung with the tail of Satan, and he took them, and they fell from heaven with him. There is no redemption for angels. The Bible is very clear. There's electing angels, and there's fallen angels. There's no salvation for them. So a third will go to the pit with Satan and all of his world's followers. But then there's another two-thirds of uh, angels, which um, Revelation uses the word myriad upon myriad, just endless numbers of them left. They marvel that our God has set out a plan of salvation to rescue you and I. And every time he does, right, every time someone comes to faith, they participate in this explosion of joy led by the Father himself. Is that not astounding? Do you not, does that not move your heart when you think about that? So here we have standing behind Jesus in this scene, the very ones who were lost, right? The Zacchaeuses and Matthews and the Mary Magdalene's and the bleeding women and so forth. These ones that heaven has rejoiced over. And over on the other is the, and let me just say on the left probably, is the pride of the Pharisees. And they're in great contrast to the joy of God and his Savior. And Jesus, he's representing the shepherd. He's representing the woman who sought the lost and found them with great joy. They're the lambs that went astray. They're the lifeless coins that were lost. All these illustrate us as sinners. This week I was sitting with a local pastor and we were just fellowshipping and encouraging one another. And for some reason we just got talking about Ephesians chapter 2 and I don't have time to go there but you know this passage. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Lifeless. Absolutely lifeless. And the Bible says he made us alive. What joy just to sit and hear two pastors have been teaching for years and years and years. And a passage we've been in a thousand times and we just find ourselves together in Denny's eating a couple of pancakes weeping over the fact that God made us alive. That's what he does. And so listen. God in Christ searches the lost. God in Christ finds the lost. Praise the Lord. God in Christ rejoices over the lost. God in Christ, who is like the woman seeking for the lost one, hidden in the cracks and the filth and the destruction of the world, right? He's in there digging out through that. God in Christ initiates the search for us. God in Christ carries out the search for the sinner, and and he finds the ones that belong to him. The sinner is in that house of the sovereignty of God in a sense, and he knows we're there. It's God in Christ who finds us. Like the coin who is lifeless and dead, fallen into the cracks of the world. It's God in Christ who searches intensely. It's God in Christ who comes down to this world, down to death, down to dirt, down to a brutal death on the cross. It's, it's God who sent his son all the way down, carrying the light of the gospel to sweep out dirt and to find us there, laying in the filth and rescue us. It's God in Christ who reached down and picks up the sinner, restores us to God's heavenly treasure where we belong. It's his name that was written. Our names are written on his hands. It's God who breaks loose with all heaven in a joyful shout at the salvation of our lost souls. And remember, it's just not the recovery of a a lamb or a coin. He rejoices over his son that his son could do it. (laughs) I thought about that because the joy seems to be around the coin and the sheep, which would represent us, right? One stray and away, an inanimate, dead, lifeless object. But yet, I think there's great joy by God in his son. Look what my son did. Are you proud of your children? I hope you are proud of your children. I'm proud of my sons. 
Can you imagine how proud and how joyful the father is of the son in the fact that he completed what nobody else could do? Tremendous joy. And it was costly, right? It was costly. He leaves the throne of heaven. He leaves glory with all the angels at his beck and call. He comes down. He comes down to a cross. He comes down to death. He comes down to dirt. He comes down to the tomb. This is priceless grace. He exposes the sin of, of our, and the great need that we have. But he has an eternal existence waiting for us. And he comes down. He lives with sinners. He lives with the people of the dirt. He lives with the outcasts. He lives with prisoners of depravity. He lives with those who are lost in darkness. This is all who standing there with him, and they represent you and I. And in this priceless grace, God in Christ has the power to redeem the lifeless, redeem the lost. This is salvation, brothers and sisters. This is what he rejoices over. I love the song, Glorious Christ. I put the words in my notes, and I sang this for the Lord this week in my office. You left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth and dwell among the outcast and the poor. You came to be forsaken and die to take our curse so you could be our joy forevermore. You are the glorious Christ, the greatest of all delights. Your power is unequal, your love beyond all heights, no greater sacrifice than when you laid down your life. We join the song of angels who praise you day and night, glorious Christ. I could see the Father leading that. So Jesus came from heaven searching the lost. He pursues sinners relentlessly, and he pursues them globally. Just think about that. Globally. Our brother David is over in uh, Liberia right now preaching the gospel. He has 60 national pastors that he's starting tomorrow with. We have missionaries around the world. Others of us travel because God is rescuing people globally. And we want to be a part of that. But our Lord did this by humbling himself. He took on the form of a bondservant, made in the image of the likeness of men. He bore God's wrath in our place on the cross. He beat sin, Satan, and death, and he rise from the grave to show that he won. And we should hallelujah that. Because our life, our dead lives were in his hands. Look, there's no other religion like this. Study all the religions of the world. They have no God who comes and rescues them with nothing from the, re- the people who need to be rescued. Everything is built on works righteousness in the world of religion. What have you done? What can you give? What can you give to get this? And if you gave it enough and often enough and, and did all the rules, then you can have this. Maybe. Not our God. Our God seeks, saves, rescues, restores, and finds great value and joy in what he finds. And don't miss this last point here, this last thought here. Those the Savior rescues, they repent. Notice that. The text says they repent. A sinner who repents. Verse 7, instead of a one like the 99 who needs no repentance, he's making a clear distinction. Those ones over here, the Mary Magdalene's, the Matthews, the Zacchaeus's, these men, these women have repented. They have turned from their sins. You will die in your sin, John chapter 8, Jesus says to them, because you will not repent. There is no joy in the death of the wicked. There is great joy in the repentance of a sinner. Isn't that a beautiful And our next story will start next week. Probably the pinnacle of this passage is the prodigal son, the lost son, and the loving father who goes after him. What an amazing contrast. So Jesus is our great shepherd. He finds great joy. Well, as usual, I can't get to my fourth point. But it's a good one, and I'm going to get to it. Because it's a point about how the church responds to this. What what kind of church are we because God sought us out and found us? And I'm going to get to it, I promise. It's a great point of application. But let's pray because we're going to sing a song and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we thank you for rescuing us. I couldn't help but look at that coin, Lord, and said that was me. I was just lost in the cracks of the world, wallowing around in the depravity of dirt. 
That's all I was, Lord. On top of that, I was lifeless. I had no spiritual life, had no desire for you. And yet, Lord, at least for me, at a very young age, you plunged truth into my heart. And for many here, I know so many testimonies here and there are so beautiful, Lord. You did the same for them. You plunged faith into them and they believed and they repented. And heaven rejoiced when you saved them, Lord. Hmm. We are a trophy of joy. Lord, we want to be a part of what you're doing. We want to be a church that has faith and love and hope. We want to be a church that reflects the joy of our salvation. Help us see these parables, Lord, and rejoice with you. And Lord, we'd ask if it, if it be your will, you would use us in some small way in the search for your lost. We've counted an honor, Lord, and we would be full of joy as we watch you save. We give you all the praise and all the glory for everything that's been said and sung and done here today. In Jesus' name, amen.